Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins. I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager. I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. Hello, Story of the Book listeners. Thank you so much to everyone who has shared, listened, talked about these episodes. We've been so happy to have you along this little adventure of ours. Don't worry, this is not a goodbye. This is us just letting you know that this is the finale of season one of Story of the Book, and we'll be back very soon with tons more episodes for your ears. In the meantime, we could not think of a more perfect person to end our first season with than Julie Filatko. Julie Filatko is a writer, a reader, a mom, a friend, and just an absolute delight. She lives in Portland, Maine with her husband, her four kids, her dog, and tons and tons of books. And you probably know Julie as one of the very funniest people on the earth, uh, but you may not know that she is also very wise. So in this episode, we talk a ton about living as a creative professional, um, and about the picture book making process. And also like, if you are looking for a writer with some conviction, Julie is it. She has it in spades. So bundle yourself up, pour yourself a nice big cup of coffee, and maybe take this episode on a stroll with you through your local cemetery, just like Julie loves to do. We hope you enjoy this, and we will see you soon with more episodes of Story of the Book. Hi, Julie. Thank you so much for coming to Story of the Book to chat about yours in books. We're so excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here. I Yay. love talking to both of you, so now I get to do it in an official capacity. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Okay, so we always start with where did the seed for this idea come from? Um, the seed for this idea came from me wanting to do a different structure for a book. So I have done metafiction. I have done sort of straight narrative. I've done books that are almost a mix of those two things. And I wanted, I, I like the thought of creating a structure and then having to work within the confines of that structure and making a story work for that. So I wanted to do an epistolary book, book all in letters, because I love those. And I think they're really interesting. I had been working on a novel that was all diary format, but it wasn't working as diary format. So I wanted to do something that was not a novel, that was something shorter that I could play around with more. So that the initial idea came from, what if there were two characters who were writing letters to each other? What could they write about? Who would they be? Hold on, I'm going to stop you really quick and have you actually pitch the book because I just realized we haven't heard you say exactly what this mysterious epistolary yes. book actually okay. is. The mysterious epistolary book is called Yours in Books, written by me, illustrated by Gabriel Alboroso and out from Cameron Kids. It is the story of an owl who keeps writing to his local squirrel bookseller or book squirrel of his local independent bookstore um, asking for books and she doesn't have the book that he wants, but she has the book that he needs. And so she sends that and slowly uh, changes him to be less of a curmudgeon through books. 
Yay. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, it's so great. Yeah. It's so Thank charming. You. So I, you mentioned too, that you have written lots of different, um, lots of books with structure. And I'm thinking about like particular structure and I'm thinking about Snapsy, the alligator did not ask to be in this book. Is that another one where the structure came first? That is no, that is not one where the structure came first. And I often hold up Snapsy as it was a delightful writing process in that it came to me wholesale while I was cooking dinner one night and I had to run away from dinner and write it down. And I thought, this is great. Look at me. I'm an author. Here come books. And then that's never happened again. So um, it was a great way to write a book that became my first published book. But um, that though, the process of that was from reading a lot of picture books and thinking about what I liked about those picture books. What, what did I think made those picture books, what, what made them good and what made them good to me? And I really liked metafiction and I liked books that did not talk down to the reader at all, that assumed that the reader is uh, able to meet the book at a high level and to be sophisticated. And um, also I've been reading the, I think it's the first Ramona book, I should know, but I think it's Beezus and Ramona where she has that book uh, about the, she keeps getting the same book out of the library. Scoopy. And Scoopy. <laughs> and, and Beezus doesn't want to read it. And it's just like very scoop. It's very like a cliche of sort of dumbed down picture books. And, um, but she likes it. And I like the idea of starting the book in that way. That's very like, here's the story kids, but then immediately changing that around. So that's when, it, but I was kind of playing with that, thinking about it, not actually writing anything down, but then that came to me all at once. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but. No, that did. <laughs> I think you did. I totally did. Um, so it sounds like, I mean, as far as ideas for picture books, they come from all over for you. They come from all over. Um, I think because I really strive to write books that are different from each other, maybe because I'm interested in so many different things and so many different kinds of books, but I don't want my books to be the same as each other. So I, I look all over and I look at all different kinds of media to see what inspires me and what I think is interesting and good. And then just like go out in the world and see what seems funny, see what seems good. And um, I, I usually do start with a character and then sort of see what different situations I can put that character in. But um, other than that, sort of the, the seed of a character being the same, it goes off in all different directions. Hmm. Do you think there, there are ideas that wouldn't work for a picture book? Or do you think that you can write a picture book about pretty much anything, like starting from any starting point? I think you, I mean, I'm sure there, there's certainly... I mean, I wouldn't write about pornography, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but other than that, I mean. Um, I meant more in terms of like the scope of the story. Like yeah. do you sometimes get ideas where you think oh. like, is this too? <laughs> I was like, that's like a novelty picture book for adults. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. And I mean, I was sort of hesitant to say it because I'm like, I'm sure this could be done in some way, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> 
I mean, never say never, but I, no, I don't think anything's off the table. I think that Mm. you can make any subject into a bad picture book and you can make it into a good one too. You know, there's, Mm. you can, um, people pitch their picture books to me sometimes. And I don't know why, because I'm not the person to pitch a picture book to. I can't make your picture book happen, but they're usually about bears and tooth care. Mm. I don't know why it's like multiple, multiple books about like Teddy bear, the dentist. I don't, I don't know why, (laughs) but, um, so I'm just, I'm sorry to tell you, if you're a listener, if that is your book, you should maybe try a different idea. (laughs) Yeah. Cause a lot of people have that idea. I don't know if this is like that big magic thing. And there's this idea about a bear and tooth care that like flies from person to person trying to get made (laughs) into a book. No one wants it. No one, (laughs) no one one can make it work. No one can make it work. Um, so but I, but I think someone probably could make it work. It would have to be very self-winking maybe, or mm. I don't know, something else entirely. It would have to be about an existential dentist or something like some mm. other thing, not about here's how you should take care of teeth because generally didactic books don't work for children because children don't like to be told what to do in their mm. literature. Right. Would you talk about maybe the difference between a good picture book and a bad picture book? And this is like (laughs) the gospel according to Julie, I realize. So this doesn't like, don't feel pressure to (laughs) be the professor here. No, I just, I mean, you just mentioned um, didactic books are a tougher sell. And, um, you know, Clementine, my daughter is obsessed with the Berenstein Bears and has been since she was two. And there is a very clear difference between the earlier Berenstein Bears that were written by Stan and Jan and the later Berenstein Bears that were written by their son, Mike Berenstein, because those went off the deep end into the Christian didactic. Here is the lesson without the story. Um, And it's interesting to see what a contrast it is. So that's one thing that you mentioned, this whole like, here's the lesson of how to do this um what else makes a good picture book versus a bad picture book in general in well I won't even say in general I'll say according according to to me right so this is maybe this won't this doesn't apply to you whoever you are like I I don't like books that are trying to teach a lesson um I think if the lesson comes along sure great but it can't be the point of the book um I think I prefer picture books, like I said before, that uh, treat the reader with respect and assume that the reader uh, is going to be able to understand sophisticated concepts, sophisticated storytelling techniques, um, is going to be able to understand a book that maybe does not on its surface have a point. Uh, But I think picture books can be pretty layered. And I think that there is an intelligence in that, um, that is hard to do, but I think it's a rewarding experience for the reader. And those are the best picture books in my mind. Um, what else? I mean, I like funny picture books better, but that doesn't, but I, I mean, I certainly like serious picture books too. It's just, that's not really a rule of what makes a good picture book. That's just personal preference. Um, what else? I like weird picture books that are um, not necessarily about 
two people who are friends. It's about that and then a whole bunch of other weird stuff thrown on top. Um, but that's just me. Uh, I should have thought about this beforehand, but these are <laughs> these are these are what come to mind. No, that's great. That's so perfect. Um, what are some of the picture books that you were reading? Maybe some of the picture books that you read growing up. Mm. And what are some of the picture books that have influenced you since then? Um, I, let's see, I read all kinds of stuff when I was growing up. Um, I'm an only child and I spent all my time in my room with my cat reading books. I didn't really do much I mean, I, that was a good childhood. I'm not trying to, just, that was great. That was that what was I wanted so to great do. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, so I read a lot. My favorite picture book when I was growing up was Amos and Boris by William Steig. Um, it's about a mouse and a whale who become friends. And it's, um, it still influences me because I think it's brilliant. And then it takes this sort of impossible concept. How can a mouse and a whale be friends? How can the mouse save the whale? And it makes it work. Um, and I read a lot of Daniel Pinkwater when I was growing up. Um, the Big Orange Splot was very influential on me, to me, um, as well as many of his other books. And there were a lot of books I read that were that, that violate those rules that I just laid out of books. There was one called like, so what if it's raining, which was just very 1970s. It was like these kids who it was raining. And so they did these other imaginative things and it was, it was, it was fine. It was okay. But it was like, I think now I would kind of be rolling my eyes about it as would probably anybody. It's a very 1970s book. Um, and then I am hugely influenced by my friend Carter Higgins, who writes different sorts of books than I do, but um, I'm lucky enough to be in a critique group with her. So I see the process of her books from start to finish. And that is a treat. And I, I just, I love the way she sets up a story. And I love that her books often do not have a standard plot and she still manages to make a story out of that. Um, uh, my illustrator, my illustrator, uh, I've worked with Ruth, Ruth Chan on a book called The Great Indoors, and then she's illustrating a book of mine that's coming out next year that's called Rick, The Rock of Room 214. And her books, uh, both her illustration style for other people's books and the stories she tells through that, and then also uh, the books that she has written and illustrated. I, I love her sense of humor and the way that she, the way that she tells a story, both with words, but especially through her pictures, I love. Mm -hmm. um, there's a book that Dasha Tolstakova wrote that came out last year called The Bad Chair, which is just, it's so wonderful and weird. And I love it so much. Um, so those are some recent ones that, um, that have influenced me and that I love. Cool. I'm writing all of those down. <laughs> <laughs> and one more question about ideas. I wanted to ask you, do your ideas change a lot as you go so let's say you start with the seed of you know yeah you want to tell a book in letters does that idea shift and change until you find the right form for it yes yes almost always um maybe because the idea is such a seed but also mm -hmm. I think because picture books are not very long and so it really gives me the space to play around a lot with uh, with different 
different approaches so that mm-hmm. maybe if it's not quite working, maybe it's just because it's maybe it's okay in that format, but it needs to needs more revision, or maybe it should be in a totally different format. And so it it takes a morning to rewrite it in a different format then look at it the day after that and see if that's better or worse. And I, Mm. I do love that about picture books. There's a book that I'm not going to talk about because it's not, it hasn't gone anywhere. I just sent it to my agent, but it took a lot of different approaches. I had this one little seed, but then I couldn't tell what the story was around that character. And so it was a lot of different putting that character in different settings with different Mm. other characters um, being like, is this what the book is about? Or is this what the book is about? And trying those all mm. out until one of them clicked. And then I could revise to make that what it was supposed to be. And this one, I mean, yours in books, the ending changed quite a bit, but the beginning was has stayed the same. Well, you talked to us about drafting picture books and drafting. Do you remember drafting yours in books? And what was that like? Um, yeah, the, for this one... I mean, usually I just try to start writing. I do like writing longhand for my first drafts um, because I find it easier to focus and easier to free write. And as somebody now who does morning pages, um, there's a that process of doing the writing where it's not, because it's not typed up, it does not look like a book. And so you can mm-hmm just keep writing. It doesn't matter if you're like, I don't know, wait a minute, this is wrong. Who cares? You know, and you're just talking to yourself. That's, that's much, that seems easier for me in a longhand. Um, this book, I have a very clear memory of walking my dog, going for a walk in the cemetery and talking out loud about who is this? Who's going to, who would write? And then I think a squirrel ran by and I was like, okay, a squirrel. And who would be writing <laughs> to the squirrel? It's got to be somebody who's a different size. So, okay. It's not a bird. Who else? Where's the squirrel? The squirrel's in the woods. So who else lives in the woods? And just really talking that out, out loud to figure it out. Um, which is actually, I do that a lot while I'm walking my dog with whatever the book is. Um, and then I like the idea of a one character who's kind of grumpy and another character who's very enthusiastic or sweet or kind is a contrast. I mean, that's, this is not the first book of mine where that has been uh, the two characters. Um, so that maybe came naturally. Um, but I, so I tend to write it out freehand and then I type it in. Um, I then print it out and look it over again and write on that more and just keep going over and over at a certain point I'll read it out loud but I wait until it's almost done to do that because it's awkward and also why bother reading it out loud if it's not done yet because it's it's the reading it out loud is the point where you need to start thinking about the poetry of the words and uh, how it sounds being read aloud I think it's important to read it aloud because most picture books are read out loud but might as well get get it as good as it can as, as far as you can and then start tweaking words yeah. And are you thinking about when you're drafting, are you already kind of thinking about page turns and how, the, what the images will be doing? Like how do the images in the words work in your mind when you're drafting? That's, that's a great question. Um, I, I get the story down first and I don't worry about page turns and I will admit that I don't worry about page turns like oh. ever. And that's, I think 
when you read a lot of picture books, they sort of get inside you and then you don't, then it's, it's a natural rhythm of writing the book. I mean, I, I sometimes, I have had editors go back and say, can you just let us know where you think the page turns are happening? And then I do. Um, and sometimes I will think, I will make a joke that only works when the first part of the joke is on one, one page. And then the second part is after you turn the page. Um, and it's certainly in a book like yours in books, I knew that each page would have a letter. The letters were not going to be mm. broken up over, over the pages. But I mean, I think that there's a natural pace to a picture book, which includes those page turns. And I think it's helpful. I mean, when I started, I will say that when I started writing, when I, um, I absolutely thought about page turns and I would make lines on the page. I would even make little like paper dummies to see how it laid mm. out. Um, and then as far as the art, I, I have gotten better about thinking more about what the art would be. There was a long time where I didn't think at all about what the art would be. I just did the words. Um, and now I think I, I think the process of having a couple of picture books out, I've gotten where I can imagine what will be happening and I can write a sentence that would be something like, but that wasn't easy for him and just leave it at that. And then imagine what, okay, what are the things that could be happening here? But I don't write them down, but it seems like it's important for me to have some knowledge of what those things might be. Mm, that's the part of your picture book writing. It's so interesting to me because picture books are so, the, the prose is so in tandem with the illustrations um, as just a part of the form. There's so much work that can happen and should happen in the illustrations that allows the prose to be much more sparse, less, less, uh, less words overall. A lot of the development happens in the illustrations. Is there, I mean, is that, do you feel like that's common with other picture book writers who like, are you, are you like them in that you think of the words and you kind of think, well, the, it, it's the illustrator's job to figure out all of this other stuff. I feel like it's this great freedom for the author because I mean, I kind of have a joke where I want to put at the end of a, of a book, like in brackets, art note, illustrator draws brilliant ending. And then I'm like, well, I don't have to worry about it. I mean, not that I've ever done that, but I kind of like, that's sort of what I want to do. But I feel like, like there have definitely been parts where I've written something like, but it was not easy for him and then had no idea what it would be. And I'm like, that's up to you. And all the illustrators I know would much prefer that authors leave it up to them to figure that out and to tell that part mm -hmm. of the story. What I have done um, with editors, uh, sometimes when we're trying to figure out what would be happening here is put in a ton of art notes to figure out what's happening. And then before it goes to the illustrator, delete all of them. So you can, you can know here's what I think would be happening here. I think that the giraffe is on a trapeze here because it says, and whoop-dee-doo or whatever. This is not a book, by the way, I just made that up. But um, <laughs> you're so, so you have... brilliant. You're just making up a picture book on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, well, I'm not sure this is a good one, but so you say, you know, and Alphonse went whoop-dee-doo and then you've got art note the giraffe is on a trapeze and then you delete that. And then maybe he's on a racetrack 
when the illustrator mm-hmm. does it because but but you there's a certain satisfaction and you're like okay I, I took care of it and if they come back and they're like what do you think is happening I have an answer but um mm-hmm. there's you are only telling half the story really I love that and I love that it gives the illustrator because the illustrator will only have one chance to look at the words and interpret them as they would do it themselves. And if you have right. too many notes, then that takes that away from them. And you might lose out on a really great concept that they would have come up with if it had been completely up to them. Right. Yeah. Right. Like their instinct. Yeah. I certainly understand the need to control and micromanage some of it. And especially because eventually your name will be on the cover, but the same way you don't want to talk down to children. You don't want to insult your illustrator. And if they are in this business, you assume that they know what they're doing. I think it's hard to control much of anything in publishing except for your words. So that's all you can do. Have you ever had to put a note in for the sake of clarity? Like in order to understand the story, you have to put a note there? Yes. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, there was one note in Snapsy that said he's still getting ready for the party at a part where he's still getting ready for the party because that is a wordless page in Rick the Rock of Room 214, which comes out next year and which I just saw first sketches for. There's one part, so it's about a rock who lives on the Nature Finds shelf in a classroom. And he learns that rocks actually live outside and do things like explode out of volcanoes and fall off of cliffs. And he thinks that sounds very exciting. So he tries to get outside and he finally does get outside. And then once he's out there, he's like, here I am. Now I'm a a real rock. And there are a whole bunch of outside rocks around him that you don't see, but then he realizes that they're there. So I had to put in some art notes that's like, there are rocks. There are other, these are rocks that have been here, but he can't see them, but then they start talking and then he sees them like that. I had to Mm. clarify that. Or there's also a thunderstorm that happens in that. So it was just crack, but I wanted it to be a thunderstorm. So I had to say, this is a thunderstorm. Um, Mm. But there's a difference between this is a thunderstorm and, you know, the sky turns gray and there is a jagged lightning that comes down from the upper left-hand corner and Rick looks worried and, you know, that stuff, Mm -hmm. that stuff has no, if you're going to put any art note in, it has to be, it could be clarity for sure. Or it could be um, just very basic. This, Mm -hmm. I will say this though, I have heard from some editors that they don't really care that much about art notes, but I I know, but I, I feel like they take them out. I think that they like to know what you're thinking, but I, I personally, maybe they don't take them out. I personally feel like an illustrator should get a manuscript with one art note at the most. That's my Mm. feeling. This all makes sense. And it, it all sounds a lot like, like you were saying that once you've read so many picture books and once you've written quite a few, it all becomes instinctive. And not only that, but you learn to just trust you learn, you learn how to shape a picture book manuscript and trust where the art notes belong for clarity and where they don't. Um, sort of like if you're starting out writing a novel, you have lots of questions about how many sentences should be in a paragraph. And it's like, I don't know, how many novels have you read? How many sentences are in those paragraphs? No, it doesn't matter, but you eventually, you know, create your own instinct for how to do that. So it makes sense. 
Mm. Yeah. And this is something that we were talking about a bit before we started recording and which I would love to talk about more with both of you because the past year and a half has um, shift, you know, part of getting to that instinctual place for me is just about writing a lot and not putting mm. pressure on the words to be excellent. You know, there's the whole bad first draft kind of thing, but not even the bad first draft, bad 15th drafts and getting to that point and being like, this story is not working and here's why. And I'm just going to take this like one character who showed up as a side character, but I actually love him best of all, or this one sentence. And I'm going to put that in another book. And you have like, it's just, it, it takes so much time to be a good writer in my experience, at least. And it takes the time to be able to dream and daydream and play with the words and playing with the words and playing with the drafts. It just, it takes so much time. And I haven't had the time to daydream with four children being at home the past 18 months. And it's, I'm finding that I need to put, it's putting pressure on the writing sessions that I do have and on the time that I do have um, in a way that I'm very uncomfortable with because I want to be able to write terrible stories and then revise them to be re revised terrible stories and then be like, this isn't working and here's the one thing that is. And so I'm finding that I need, I'm needing some kind of structure to my uh, garbage story writing time. Um, there was a, I, I heard a podcast interview with Maggie Rogers, who's an a musician where she said she joined I love a, her. she joined a group over the over the past year where they had to write a song a day and they had to upload it to this group and if they didn't write upload the song they were kicked out it was like no excuses <laughs> you have to upload a song right so like that I thought was really interesting and then there was um, a New York Times article by an author named Elliot Holt who said that he has been reading a poem out loud every day and he picks one poem per month. So for January, he picks a poem and he first thing in the morning, he reads the poem, he reads it out loud. And for all of January, he reads that same poem and that the process of doing that, he sees things in the poem that he didn't see on first reading. He understands mm -hmm. parts of the the language of the poem and like why it used these certain rhymes or these certain uh, words with a lot of O's in them or something like that. Um, and, and by the end of the month, he has memorized the poem and he's also learned a lot about language and poetry and mm -hmm. how words work. And I love that. Um, it's a little bit less pressure than being kicked out of a group if you don't upload your work at the end of the day. Um, and <laughs> I just read the George Saunders book about writing and reading Russian short stories, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And um, so I've started this practice, which has not gone very well because my children are still home, but I'm sort of committed to doing it by myself now, which is to read a short story, to analyze it in the way that George Saunders brings up, which is to really look at like, what do I think is going to happen in this, in this short story? Why do I think that? What are the characters doing? What are these words about them, these descriptions about them say about them? like old school collegiate, you know, short story 101, read it, write my notes on it. And then think about what about this inspires me? Why do I think it's a good story? 
how can I take that element and um, and make it into a picture book? And I sort of like that because it's a different source of inspiration than being inspired directly by picture books, although I certainly am. Um, so I, I read one short story and haven't written anything yet. As of this recording, hopefully by the time this comes out, I will have. But it just to, to have a practice of getting all that writing down. I'm not expecting any good picture books to come out of this, but I am expecting to become a better writer by the end of it. Well, I love the idea of having a practice of reading something closely, because I think that's part of the problem um, that the pandemic has caused is, I mean, of course, that you have your children at home and that interrupts your usual routines. But at the same time, we're not leaving the house. So we don't, we don't get the same kind of input that we would normally get. And like your well just feels empty all the time. Um, like I'm amazed how energized I am. Just like I go to like get a coffee. I don't sit at the coffee shop, but just buy a coffee and come home. I'm in my car for like 10 minutes. And I'm so energized just because I left the house, you know, and I don't know. So I think that's a big deal. And yeah, I, th I think that just having sources of input that are different from the thing that you're trying to make. Like I've also kind of just started reading lots of different kinds of books that I wouldn't normally read. I just feel like I need extra, I don't know. Yeah. Difference things that are, that are different from my usual experience. Um, and yeah, if you don't, if you're not putting things in, you can't, you, you get to a point where you're trying to write and it's just like, there's nothing there. It just feels like a dry pen. That's a good metaphor. Yeah. And I really, it, it, the, uh, the anxiety and all of that of the past year and a half, I think we have to shift our routines, um, in a big way because mm. our routines were shifted in a big way. And we yeah. have been in that space for a year and a half or more. And I think if we want to get closer to a place again of creativity and of inspired creativity, we have to, mm. we have to make new rules for ourselves so that our bodies are remembering the creativity and not remembering the closed in claustrophobic anxiety that we've been living with for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. What you were saying also reminds me of something from Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, where she talks about this sort of contract she made as a young, like teenager to write and how years later, as she starts getting all these rejections, she sort of turns to the heavens and says, well, I never said I would be a good writer. I never promised to write good books. I just said that I would write. That was the agreement. Um, and she also says like, I haven't even been rejected by some of the people who are going to reject me. I, some of the people who are going to reject me later on haven't even been born yet, which is wonderful. But I love the idea of the contract with yourself to write, not to write yeah. good things or bad yeah. things, but just the agreement was to write. And it's not my business, whether it's good or bad, that that is not the agreement I made. The agreement is just to create and produce words. There's a part in the artist's way, which I did for the first time all the way through this year, where you're supposed to write sort of a contract with yourself. You're supposed to write a post-it note and stick it up in your office that says, okay, creative force, you take care of the quality and I'll take care of the quantity. So I'll just keep writing and writing. And at some point it'll get better. It'll become stuff that's not going to get rejected, but I'm not going to worry about that right now. I'm just going to 
put as many words down on the page as I possibly can. Yeah. Well, it just reminds me of something. I think I told you about this, Julie, about Ray Bradbury, who said when I, when he was starting out trying to write short stories, he set this goal of getting a hundred rejections, um, just as quickly as he could, just as a way of getting his work finished and getting it out there. And he mentioned that after the first like 25 to 50 of them, it got a lot slower to gather those rejections because he got better. And he just Mm. sort of said to all you writers who are looking at a hundred rejections and thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, that, that just seems so disheartening. He says, well, it's impossible for you to write that much and not eventually get better. Do you ever draft picture books in batches like this? Um, I have done that. I've done, there's a, Julie Headland has a group called 12 by 12, which started in 2012. And it was writing a picture book a month. And I did that. And that changed a lot for me and my process, realizing that, that you can write a book and, um, and that it can be bad and that's okay because you've, you've finished it. Um, that process helped me to figure out how to do a beginning, a middle and an end in a picture book. And like, cause sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean the same as a beginning, a middle and an end in a novel, say it can be a little snippet of time, but there still needs to maybe be a structure for me, at least like a, an arc of some kind. Um, so that helped a lot. And then the year after that, it was, you could write or revise a picture book because at the end of 2012, we all had like 12 bad picture book drafts. So then that helped me to get into revising. I'm kind of always working on, I haven't done it quite the way you're saying we're coming up with like a one a day. Although now that I'm thinking about all this, the way we were, we've been talking about it, I've been thinking about maybe trying to do something like that just to jumpstart creative inspiration again. Um, but I usually am working on a couple of different ones at once to try to figure them out and they might inform each other. Um, and I have, I have dozens and dozens of picture books that are nothing and will never be anything. And I should, I, I mean, I superstitiously, I don't want to delete them, but, uh, if anyone ever read them, I would be, um, not happy because they're bad, (laughs) really bad. I would love for you to talk more about that, about, I think this is true in any kind of writing form, whether you're writing novels, which this is a lot more painful when it's novels that you're writing and putting away, um, or short stories or picture books or songs or whatever, but there is going to be, I think, uh, quite the stack of unfinished or unworthy (laughs) work that you do. Um, how do you feel like, how does that make you feel Mm. as a, as an artist to have these sort of like nice attempts, but not quite. Cause I have those for novels too. I mean, I have five or six novels that are complete and not maybe never will go anywhere. I don't know. I mean, I still have dreams for those, but lots and lots of picture books. And here's what I think about it. And I will say this from the viewpoint of somebody who does have books out and does have my name on the cover of books, which has always been this sort of like impossible dream. And now it exists. So uh, I'm from that viewpoint, but I feel like being a writer is writing and it's amazing and awesome when 
I write something that's good enough to get a book deal and become a book. That's like, I'm not going to pretend that that's not the goal, but like when I don't write, I get grumpy and I don't feel like myself. And, um, so, but, and it's not when I don't write well, it's just writing, you know, I want, and it's, it's what you were saying, like Elizabeth Gilbert says. And again, I, I mean, I want to write, I want to write books. I want my books to be better and better, but, um, I, you know, I would never want one of those bad books to become a book. I think that there's this notion that sometimes people have when they haven't written a lot yet, that is, it doesn't matter if it can be, if somebody wants to make it into a book, then I'll take it, you know, sure. And then I'll get a million dollars. And I feel like all of that is wrong. And that I, I don't want a book to come out that is, that has my name on it and that I'm not proud of. And that's always my goal is for me to write something that I'm proud of. There was a process, there was a part in the process of writing my book, No Boring Stories, which was the final version of that is like version 85, I think. And that's like 85 totally different plots working with my editor. And there was a period in that where we still couldn't figure it out. And I wrote a version that I hated. And it was like what she had asked for. There's a lot of characters in that book. And she said, there's too many characters. And why don't we try to make it like a cumulative story, sort of like Bremen town musicians where they come along and they get added one by one. And I wrote that and I, I really hated it. And I remember thinking, if this is what she wants, okay, because I'm kind of done with revising this book. I'm so tired of it, but I'm not going to put my name on it. Like I'm going to make up a pseudonym or something. Cause I, I can't, I'm not proud of this. And luckily we then went beyond that and made it into something I was proud of, but I would never want one of those bad books to become a book. It would, it would be embarrassing. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Even with a novel, like you can, cause I do the same thing with novels. I don't know if you know this Judy, but I have like a seed and then I try on different clothes for the novel and it, it might take me three months to do that. And it's like, sometimes you look back and you're like, was that three months was wasted, you know, <laughs> because it still isn't working or six months or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, you get to a point where you're like, well, if I can't figure this out, I'd rather put it aside than like send it out, you know, because yeah, it's it's never worth it to put something out that you don't feel proud of. Don't you feel though that you're working on all these things and some of them truly will never become a book, but I feel like there's a lot of books that are waiting for me to become a better writer. Like there are novels that I have that are waiting for me. And I know that they are because the idea is there, but I haven't figured out the execution because I'm not a good enough writer yet. And there's picture books too. There's a picture book that I've been working on for two years and it's the seed is there, but I cannot figure it out. And I know that I just have to keep writing other things until mm. I can become a good enough writer to figure that out. Oh, I love that. I'm so sorry. I'm the opposite, but I understand. <laughs> I understand though, like Lindsay. the idea. 
I know. Wait, wait, I are know. you saying that you're like already <laughs> such a good writer and now you're just like waiting for the idea? I am brilliant. brilliant. I, kind of, I kind of am. No, I am not saying that I am brilliant. That is not what I'm saying. You and I though. am. You the are, way you yeah. We all are brilliant. That's, I mean, but that's neither here nor there because there's lots of brilliant people and there's lots of non-brilliant people who are writing books. Um, <laughs> and that's fine. No, I just, I, but I, I don't disagree at all with the idea of being proud of what you're putting out and, and also instinctively knowing if it's where it needs to be or not. Mm. Um, I always, I like to say that something that I write isn't good or bad because I've gotten it good or bad. It's good or bad. It's, it's good because I wrote it. Um, which is probably like a different, a different thing anyway. Um, I just always, I don't know, like you, you mentioned the, um, the artist way quote about you take care of the quality and I'll take care of the quantity. I feel like much of my career so far has been very focused on the quantity, the amount, um, with the idea that if I write, if I'm able to write 50 books in my lifetime, not all of them are going to be 10 out of 10 perfect mm -hmm. books, at least not by any metric that you could possibly measure. Um, but looking at, so if you picked out one individually and read it, you, it might not be, you know, as good as another one that you could pick out and read, but the idea of a whole shelf of Lindsay books and knowing that I became a story-making machine and that some of them will be like sixes and some of them will be nines and that's all fine. Um, but that's very different than I guess what we're talking about, which is just, yeah, that knowledge of like, this is, this is what the story should be. I have brought it to that point or yeah, you're still, you're still proud of the sixes. Like, yep. even if someone's like, oh, this is a six out of 10. You're like, I love that book though. I yep. love that. It's a six. It was never 10. meant to be a 10. <laughs> Like, yeah, some of them are just not meant to be tens and that's okay <laughs> too, because they're not, because not everything can be, I mean, sometimes you have to eat like a fast food pizza. Like you can't have, like, not everything can be, I don't know. And a lot of this goes into the idea of like, um, different art being, you know, judged by different standards and what, you know, prestige TV versus sitcoms and highbrow mm. versus lowbrow and all of the, and commercial fiction versus literary fiction. Um, but, but still, even with me going, yeah, I'm, I love the sixes. The sixes are great too. That idea of knowing when it's just right and it's ready. Um, and it, mm. I brought it as far as I can, you know, at this moment, could we on that note, talk about revision with picture books? Because Julie, having talked to you through several revision processes, processes um, of your picture books, I know that the revision process for picture books can look very different than a revision process for a novel. Do yeah, I wouldn't hear about it. Too. Yeah, will you talk about how you revise a picture book and maybe like yeah. highlight what the difference is? Because it sure. looks really different. Um, I will. I, yes. And I do want to say to your point, I think we are all agreeing because I wasn't saying that I don't let a book go until it's a masterpiece. I just, I think being proud of something is an achievable metric. And yeah. um, especially going back to that notion of what can you control, you can control your words. Um, and that's all you can, can, that's all I can do. So yeah. if I make something, if I get it to the point where I'm proud of it, then that's, that's all I can do. And maybe it'll be a masterpiece or maybe it'll be a six, as long as I'm proud of it. 
that's all I care about. I think I'm just saying my standards for myself are probably <laughs> in the dirt. That's <laughs> what I may be saying. Talking to you about books, I don't agree that those are your standards, but um, nah. yeah. Uh, maybe, so maybe I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and our standards, I think this is what we're saying too, is our standards after a pandemic are a little bit different than maybe our pre-pandemic standards, because now it's like, did I complete a crappy draft of a picture book that I think is not great? Yes. Good. I win. You know, like I'm proud of that. That's something. Whereas, you know, in 2019, we would have been like, this is where I am. Gosh. But (laughs) yeah. Um, my, okay. So revision process, I'm trying to think, um, you know, it's so funny because I've revised so many more picture books than novels. I'm trying to think what the difference is because I feel like right now I would say that they're similar, which is that I I write it and I write it and then I revise it. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I mean- well, okay. So I guess the difference between a 50,000 word novel that mm-hmm. you are revising looks very different than a 350 word picture book right. that you're revising. Because I have talked to you before when you've been like, hey, I wrote this picture book about a school teacher and a pencil, and then I revised it, and now it's actually about a camel. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> right. Something, but, it's, but you still can refer to it as the same picture book. Right. Because it is the same, even though all 350 words have changed. Right. You can't, you can't yeah. always do that with a novel in the mm. same way. Well, you could again if you want to do time. Sure. And many of us do. Yes. <laughs> that's true, Haley. Yeah. But but there's always something structurally, Haley, that stays the same or some sort of yeah. that stays the same. Whereas Julie, yeah. I've talked to you before when right. the whole thing shifts so wildly that I don't right. know if you would recognize it. Right. Right. And it's um yes. And I think that that is sort of what I was talking about before, where you write it out and then you see what's working and what's not. And you, um, you know, that picture book, no boring stories that I was talking about earlier after that draft of the, of that I hated and was not going to put my name on, I printed it out and then I printed out, I wrote five different versions of it after that. I was like, I don't even know how this is going to work. So it's a book about um, animals who are not in picture books, who are trying to get into picture books. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to do it. And that has sort of been, I mean, well, no, actually in the very first version, that book was about furniture and it was about furniture that nobody knew about like a pie safe and a credenza and a low boy and a high boy. And they got together and they were like, how can we make it? So that people, it wasn't even, how can we make it? So people know who were they, who we are. It was, does anyone know who we are? So they were bringing, like, I was in a catalog. I was in a book and that was the whole book. That was it. This um, is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like that's, I can see how, I can see how the, I can see the echoes of similarity between that yeah. and the final draft, but there's a huge difference that maybe you wouldn't see in a novel revision. Right. Unless you're Haley Chewins. <laughs> so I, yeah, so that was a book and there were many, many drafts of that book. There was, I, it was called regular sofa for a lot of the time because the sofa shows up and she's like, Hey guys. And they're all like, what are you doing here? You're a sofa. And then she pretends that she's something else. And that's what that was about. Um, so I just thought it was funny to have furniture be upset. 
that was like the whole what it came from. It is funny. And, yeah, right. And then um my agent at the time was like, Yeah, I don't think this is like I don't know what to do with this. Can you make it animals? And I was like, okay. So I just did like a search and replace and made the there was like a dais and that became a became a mole, the credenza became a weevil, just did a search and replace. And then and that was like version 15 already by the time we got there. And then that, um, I mean, at one point there were kids who went up and found the furniture in the attic. It was like, I knew it wasn't working when I was trying to figure out how to make it work. And so then it was the animals. And then for a while it was about, um, it was about the animals trying to get into picture books and the bunny shows up and is like, I have the secret. Uh, at a point it became, it was like, unintentionally racist because it was the underrepresented animals and the white bunny who's like I'll show you how to get into publishing and um and my that was like a fairly far along in the process and then and it sat like that, that for a while and then my editor was like hey bad news <laughs> I read the book over and it's bad so um so then there was a whole change after that but what I was getting to was um the version where it was the cumulative story that I hated. I came up with a whole bunch of different ways to do it. There's one that I told like entirely in charts where I was like, the the main character, the mole was like, here's a chart of what books kids like. And here's a chart of the books that we're in. And it was like literally little Excel charts that I was dropping in. Like, it doesn't make any sense, but it, it was like, sure, charts are funny. Um, and then I printed them out and I gave them to my kids the ones who could read. My youngest can read now, but she couldn't at the time. And I gave them different colored pens. And I said, I need you to circle everything that's working in orange. I need you to circle everything that's not working in blue. And I need you to circle everything that's funny in pink. And I made them put their initials next to it because my kids have very different tastes in books. So I need to know like who thinks what's funny. And then I took all the parts that were funny and were working and I took them out and I put them together into a new book. And that is essentially the book that it is. Um, wow. But, but so, so that was a desperate measure, but it's sort of what I do now when revising is I look at it and say, what's working, what's funny, what's not working. And then I, I make that into, um, into a book, but I do a lot of revising while I'm walking with the dog and talking out loud. Um, I find that the way to get like, all I'm chasing is that lightning bolt of inspiration. That's like, oh, maybe that will work. Like that is all I ever am chasing that and a flow state, which has been really elusive the past year and a half, but I'm chasing that lightning bolt of inspiration. And the only way I can get there is either by walking and talking out loud or by free writing about my book. Um, it's not by sitting at my desk and typing on the book ever for me, maybe for other people it is, but never, ever for me. So I free write, I walk and talk out loud, and then I revise to those things and see if now it's working. Hmm. And can you just tell us about yours in books? Like, was it a similar kind of process where there were lots of different iterations of the story? No, not as much with this one. Um, I think because I did a lot of thinking beforehand about what I wanted it to be. Um, the biggest change with this one was the end was different. Um, the, in the original one, it was more about the owl being in love with the sound of his own voice. Um, he did a lot of reading out loud. He decided he was going to like have a radio show. Um, 
And then at the end, she got him to get out of the house by having an open mic night at the bookstore. And he came to the open mic night and read aloud. There was a lot of like poems by the owl in the first one, which were all really pretentious and bad, but he was very proud of them and wanted to read them out loud to the children. Um, that was a lot of the first one, um, which was fine. It just was, it wasn't a picture book, you know, it was like, I don't know. It was a weird other story, which is fine, but um, that's the version they got the book deal though. And so it was good enough. And then working with the editor to be like, what, how can we make this more about the bookstore and less about the owl and his voice? And you said something earlier about the beginning, middle, and end, and how picture books have to have beginning, and middle, and end, but that sometimes a picture book beginning, middle, end structure is different from a novel. Can you say more about that? I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. So I feel like, and I will say that I don't actually, I think that beginning, middle, and end are defined differently for a picture book than they are for a novel because it can because you can have a picture book, like my friend Carter's book, Everything You Need for a Treehouse, is essentially just a list of things you need for a treehouse. But the treehouses get more involved and more elaborate as it goes on. And it's sort of like, it goes from like, here's a treehouse to like, what would you want to do in a treehouse? How would you want this multi-layered treehouse with books inside? And it's very dreamy, but it doesn't really it has sort of an escalation to it, but it doesn't really have a beginning, a middle and an end. But I think, and I think you can, well, I was going to say, I think you can have a sort of open-ended ending to a picture book, but I think you can in a novel too. Um, I think it's more that in a novel you need, traditionally, you need like a plot and a climax and a denouement and character arcs that match that plot um, and a villain arc which matches a plot or goes makes a u shape but in a picture book you can have just one of those things and it can be very small so it's going to be about a character but maybe not their whole life it could be about their whole life but it could just be about walking to the corner and what happens when you walk to the corner and it can be a very small moment when you walk to the mm. corner or you know yours in books is about an owl sort of feeling better about where he lives and the intrusions in his life. And, but it's, I mean, he has more of a character arc than the squirrel does, but it's not like, and he gets out of the house and then he's, um, he's at the bookstore, but it's not like, it's not huge. You know, it's, it's a, it's a moment, but, and it's a change for him for sure, but it's, it would not work in a novel because it's not big enough for a novel. I mm. But I think it's amazing how much of an arc he has. When I was reading it, I, I was struck by that, like how oh. the images in the beginning and how he's set up in the beginning is, yeah, he just wants to block everyone out. He wants to be alone. He's really set on like, that's what's going to make him happy. And then by the end, <clears throat> sorry, I have this frog in my throat. By the end, like he's, yeah, he's happy surrounded by these, naughty children and he's made a new friend and I just I thought it was yeah I could definitely see like three act structure in it could you Lindsay oh yes absolutely and possibly um the most out of all of your picture books at least I think 
Yeah, I think I'm talking about this one because it's the one that we're talking about. But yes. um, yeah, <laughs> but I think uh, I like when I mean, one thing that I think is so cool about picture books is that you can set them up with a three act structure and character arc. And I mean, I love exactly what you're talking about, too, that the illustrator Gabriel Alboroso in the beginning the owl is shutting himself in and literally has pillows tied to his head to try to like shut out the world. And then he does finally leave and they're in, in the illustrations as part of his arc. Um, but I love that there can be picture books which are like little poems and are just a slice of a thing. Um, mm. My Snapsy illustrator or my Snapsy editor, Joanna Cardenas, would always say to me, but what is the heart of this story? And I think about that all the time. Mm. Um, and that is really the driver for my revisions is always, okay, now I have like the, it's like, I have this basket of stuff. I have characters, I have some scenes, I have some ideas about it, but like, what is the heart of this story? And it can be, what is the story trying to say? What is the story about? Um, and is it, you know, it might be about friendship or it might be about, um, standing up for yourself or, and it's something that you never want to actually say out loud in the story, but is this a foundation underneath that drives it so that you can revise to that. And it can change for sure. If the story changes enough that it needs to have that heart of the story change. But, um, if you have that in your mind, then I think you can have a big, grand epic story with lots of plot or you can have a story with almost no plot that is just about a character that you might relate to um and they both work if they're telling a story you know mm -hmm. yeah I love that I was going to ask you what it was that makes um a story that is maybe just a list or that is more a series of images or almost like a theme rather than a structure of like a structured story where a character goes on this arc or this journey I was going to ask you like what makes that good then versus like what makes it just a picture book versus like just a random list of things that you need for a tree house but I think you've answered it I think like that idea of the heart of the story is so profound actually yeah and it's I think it's interesting with picture books because a lot of the time people want there to be like a lesson they don't want it to be spelled out like like if it was spelled out in yours and books then like squirrel would say to owl well it's better to have friends than to be alone owl you know you don't want to do that but you do want there to be some kind of I mean I don't like the word lesson or the word message but something at the heart of it maybe that's yeah maybe that's what you're talking about is like the heart of the story this thing that the story kind of revolves around um, and I lost my train of thought now, like completely. No, well, you're you were asking like what makes a <laughs> what makes a book a book, especially if it's a picture yes. book that has that is just a list of things. And I yeah. think that our job as authors, you know, we have these brains, these genius brains that we have that and that have these ideas. And the the job of writing is to get that idea onto the page, but then also who cares, right? Like, so if you have this idea. And it's about a teddy bear and dental hygiene, who cares? And can you then figure out a way to make us care about that? So, mm. you know what's so brilliant about everything you need for a treehouse is you do care about these treehouses. 
even if you didn't even think about tree houses before, even if it is a list essentially and not no plot because because the language is so beautiful and the illustrations are so imaginative and expansive that you fall into the world of a book and then suddenly you care very much. And so you can have a story that maybe more like yours in books, which I think you're right, Lindsay, I think it does have more three-act structure and character arc than my other books, but you care about the characters and you care about what happens to them. And other ideas, you know, like Rick the Rock of Room 214 is about a rock who lives on a shelf. And it's like, that is such a classic me book in so many ways, because that's the sort of things that I think about and I anthropomorphize rocks and acorns and there they are. But then like, okay, so great. You've got this wacky idea, Julie, but who cares, right? Make us care. What, what do you, what can you do to make us care? And that's what the revision process is not only figuring out the heart of the story, but like, you're going to take someone's time. You're going to take 17 of their dollars and have the kids sit on their lap. Then what make it worth it, you know? (laughs) And I, I think too, um, it is about trade-offs because I was just thinking about some of like my very favorite picture books and um, like blueberries for Sal and all of the Francis books um, like the Francis, the badger books. Um, They don't necessarily have lessons or morals or, um, or, you know, they're not didactic. I mean, blueberries for Sal, you know, both the, both the, pairs of mothers and children go back the way they came down the sides of blueberry hill and go home and what happens nothing they had just a funny mix up um and it on paper it seems like it would be such a small story um but you trade you trade having like big themes and big emotions the trade off then is that the story itself better be funny delightful charming compelling, interesting, any of those things, the, the words that you choose better be interesting and interesting to read out loud. I mean, blueberries for Sal without the complaint, complaint, kaplunk. Is it quite as charming? Maybe not. Um, so like as somebody who like most of the time when I start really any kind of shorter fiction other than a novel, so a picture book or a short story, I am often starting with some sort of big concept or theme, um, like friendship or like uh, un- unrequited love or like whatever. And it often is really hard for me to distill that and, and ignore it actually and get back to the actual story and focus just on the story part, the entertaining story part. Um, so I can see how like it becomes this weird like sliding abacus scale thing where you're like, okay, well, this is very heavy on lesson and themes so then that means like the story part can go this way and the pictures need to go this way and the language like it's all about creating that balance I would imagine especially with structurally unusual picture books like lists or recipes or letters or what have you it's all about like figuring out the trade-off and I think that in the best picture books there are ones like blueberries for Sal where you can think about whatever it is you're going through, you can maybe, I mean, not whatever, but like, there's a lot, like, I think different people probably read that book very differently because it's a simple enough story, but there's a lot 
a lot happening in it. And I think, I mean, for me, the thing from that story that always, always stuck with me more than anything, I think it's even the end papers where they're back in the kitchen. Yes. It's like amazing 1940s kitchen and they're canning the blueberries. And to me, and it's always- Sal has all the bracelets of yeah, the lids. That's right. The, the, little, the, yeah. right the, the mason jar lids. Yeah. And she's, and it's about like, you go out and you have an adventure and it's a little bit scary, but then you come back home to your safe house. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit about what One Morning in Maine is about also. Yeah. Um, and I love those for that, but maybe that's not what somebody else would read in those. And I, I think, like, I think in yours in books, people have said to me, oh, I thought I was the owl, but today I'm the squirrel. And like, they are different. Um, you can see yourself in different parts of it. And maybe it's about, maybe to some people, it's about how kids are intrusive. And maybe to other people, it's about the transformative power of books. Maybe to other people, it's about the transformative power of booksellers and their recommendations and indie bookstores. Maybe to other people, it's about how writing letters was great and we should do that again. And mm -hmm. um, the- About motherhood, hey right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, living in the woods, how we should all do that. I mean, there's a lot- um, I think you can, there are a lot of different takes on it. Um, yeah. I, I don't I think if a picture book can only be read one way, it's maybe not working very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, let's talk about, I mean, we could talk about Riveted and Forth forever, but let's talk about how yours in books became an actual book. Okay. Um, so, like I said, I wanted to write a structure that was a little bit different. I wanted to do something that was not straightforward narrative. Um, I do like epistolary things. I think they're cool. There's uh, 100, 100 cherry, 84. All right, wait, delete the part where I get the name of that word, that book wrong. There's 84 Charing Cross Road, which is not a novel, but is epistolary and wonderful. There's Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which I love how, as a novel, how much that leaves off the page that you have to figure out by the story being told only in emails and letters. Um, so I decided to make it about books um, and about writing letters. And I love my own independent bookstore. And an interesting thing about this book is because I wrote it in 2017. Um, I think the book deal was 2019, maybe. Um, did the standard number, it probably went through five or six major edits with my editor. Um, then got Gabriel Albarozo on board and he's just so perfect for this book because that's, I'm not I'm not like a super huge Anglophile, but there's something very British about this book and he's English. And I just love the like very cozy tea and crumpets kind of aesthetic in this book. And, um, but then, then we had a pandemic when I was spending so much time writing letters essentially to my local independent bookstore and being like, I just need books. I need a book. That's a delightful book. That's not going to be scary or anxiety producing. Send me a romp. And then they would send me a romp 
And then I would ask for more. I would be like, my kids read all the graphic novels, send more graphic novels, and they would send more graphic novels. Um, and in fact, the bookstore in this book is named after my local beloved independent bookstores. My local bookstore is Print, a bookstore, and the bookstore in this book is Pine, a bookshop named after them. It was called something else last year. And then during the pandemic, we were going through and coming up with other names. And there's a lot of bookstores that are named kind of woodsy things. There's like acorn books and oak tree books and lots of bookstores named things like that. And finally, I was like, I can avoid all that naming it after a bookstore. I don't know by naming it actually after the bookstore I know. So um, that I think I skipped a lot of parts of the process of making a book. Do you have more questions about like how a picture book becomes a book? Yeah, um, we talk about when the illustrator comes on board and at what yes. point and, and who decides that and what your yes. role is. Um, I do not decide that at all. Um, people often think that I do, or I assume that they think that I do because they come to me and ask if they can illustrate my books. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, the publisher decides that. Uh, which is fine by me because the publisher knows about a lot of illustrators that I don't know about. So um, the illustrator, in my experience, comes on board after the book is all edited so that there is something that they can send to the illustrator and see if they can do it. Often there is another round or two of, like the book is almost done. There might be a little bit more that happens um, especially if it's an illustrator that has a busy schedule and maybe they're like, we're going to try to get this person. Um, and you can send them something that's maybe 90% done, but then it'll change a little bit afterwards because they don't have time to work on it anyway, because it takes a good year and a half, I would say, to do all the, I mean, not solid year and a half of work to do the illustrations, but usually you see they do black and white sketches and then there's, um, edits made to that sometimes I see usually the author sees the sketches at that point um yeah I don't I mean and, and it's not my job to make edits on those if there's something that is very wrong like if a word is misspelled in an illustration that's like a sign in an illustration that's been a time when I've said something um or if there's something that is wrong, I can, been, I can't, I'm trying to think of an example. I think there was something in the second Snapsy. I'm trying to remember. And I don't want to sound like I'm throwing Tim Miller under the bus because that's, but there was something in that. I didn't remember if it was that one now. There was something in one of them by one of my brilliant illustrators that was like incorrect for, oh, you know what it was? I think it was in a two dogs in a trench coat. So it wasn't that, it was like something that did not show what was in the, what the text said. Um, but then, so you see, so it's like the processes are totally separate that I don't have anything to do with the illustrator's illustrations. That's their job. Um, and then I see the black and white sketches and then I see the colorful sketches and then it goes to print. I'm glad I'm not the person to tell the illustrator how to do their job because I don't know how to do that at all. I would have to learn how to do that. But like with Rick the Rock of Room 214, Ruth Chan had done another book with Simon and & Schuster and with the same editor. And the editor, Kendra Levin, said, 
do you think Ruth, you know, what do you, how do you feel about Ruth doing this? And I was like, yes, please. And so then worked it out. I mean, when the book is coming out, I think a little bit later than it was going to originally because I wanted Ruth to be on board and because Ruth and I are friends and we do talk to each other, we talked a bit about things, but um, I certainly am not going to get in her way because I love what she does. I'm, it's not my job to get in there and tell her what to do, but she does send me like sketches and things via text that I don't, don't usually see from other people. It's so interesting how separate you are from the illustrator. And I think that's something I'm guessing, I mean, I know you've done a lot of workshops and things with aspiring picture book writers or beginning picture book writers. Is that something that's surprising to a lot of them? I don't, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that when you are starting off and you, you don't have any idea what the process is, there's this notion that you are involved in that somehow. Because what, I mean, it's the thing with picture books is that if you are a non-illustrating author, you are the one who came up with the idea. And I will admit to feeling some, uh, I don't know what the word would be. Like I started it all, like feeling some ego about that. Ownership, maybe. Ownership, yeah. And I mean, I absolutely... But at the same time, the illustrator then takes that and makes it, then then they own their part of it. Um, and I think that's an important part too that I don't want to dismiss because if I were illustrating the books, they would look much different and worse. You know, like with the second Snapsy book where it was very clear that it was going to be Tim Miller illustrating, um, I did put art notes in that, but that was just like talking to Tim right? It was like putting in little things because I knew it was Tim. Um, and, and a little bit with Rick the Rock, because there were some rounds of edits after we knew that Ruth was going to illustrate and also the same thing, just putting in like, Ruth can do her fun thing here, you know? Um, it is like, I wonder what it would be like to be more collaborative. And I'm, I'm sure that there are some illustrators and authors who are more collaborative in the whole process but um to to me from a purely efficiency based standpoint it makes sense to me to work on the text and then let it go and then be working on other text while that book is making itself into a book um because the illustrator is working on it separate from me like i don't have the time to tell the illustrator what to do because I'm doing other things. Yeah. Um, I, I have the feeling too, it would require a lot of emotional bandwidth to be able to collaborate with an illustrator at that point in the same way that it would be to collaborate with another writer on a novel, super fun, but also requires a lot of um, like time to let your shields down and your ego and, and to get into the headspace of, oh yeah, we're creating something together. Mm -hmm. um, rather than, yeah, wanting everything to be coming from you and, and done your way. And it's an interesting whiplash that you must go through then because you have to go from that complete ownership, ego, ego-driven place of creating the manuscript and getting all the words exactly how you want them. And then immediately going, okay, now somebody is going to turn this into something completely like now it's time to collaborate and send it on the factory line 
to, to turn into something totally different. So it's yeah. interesting, but, but, but as you're writing the words, you know, eventually that's, what's going to happen. Right. Right. It's not like you wrote the first half of a novel and then unbeknownst to you, someone else was coming along to write the second, to write alternate chapters throughout to the other voice or something. Um, I've, yeah, I, uh, I had something really brilliant to say a minute ago. <laughs> I wonder what it was. Um, I think it was just that. I I think it it must be so magical though to kind of send off your brilliant idea your finished manuscript and then to see someone take that and just like bring it to life in in an art form that you don't you're not capable of doing it you know you in a way it is like you're handing it over and I'm, I'm sure that there's some you know like that can be kind of hard to hand your work over but then you get this reward of just like seeing your work come to life I I mean I've only experienced that in a very small way with having a book cover you know like seeing the cover of a book that you you wrote and you could never have imagined what the publisher would come up with for the cover and it's just always so magical so cool yeah that's it is magical and it's Mm -hmm. magical also because it's this idea that I had and now that somebody illustrated my idea is is very, very cool. And I think it all comes down to trusting the process. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember when Snapsy was, um, they were trying to find an illustrator for it. And I ran into this artist person that I kind of know. And she said, well, if you get the wrong illustrator, it'll ruin your book. And I was like, yeah, I know. Thanks a lot. Right. And I mean, that's true. I that's suppose. a nice thing to say. <laughs> I know it was very strange, but um, <laughs> so you have to work enough with your publisher and with your editor to trust that they're going to find somebody that you, that was, is right for the book. And you have to trust the illustrator that they're going to tell their half of the story so that it works. Um, but again, like I, I, I can't control the illustrator nor like I shouldn't, nor could I. Um, so if I can make sure that the words are where they are, then that gives enough to sort of shove them at the illustrator and the illustrator can run with them. Um, it is super fun to see the illustrations be completely different than I expected them to be, but also be perfect. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. a it's it's a gift in disguise really to not have to worry about the art because it means mm-hmm. that you get to focus completely on your part of the craft yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I I'm get just, why people do worry about it but I yeah. I mean what's the what's the point I mean right that's not, not how it's job. structured so no it's not your job at all so just make your words as good as they can be and then or learn how to illustrate if you really want to make it your your problem (laughs) yeah but also like the quality of illustrations is so incredible these days I mean picture books are just works of art they really are I mean 
picture book illustrators are artists they're just they're incredible so I don't know I wouldn't I, it wouldn't even enter my mind to think like oh if the illustrator is bad it's going to ruin my story I I don't know maybe that's just na- naivety but yeah I hadn't <laughs> thought of that either until that very very nice lady said it to me out loud before my first book came out and then it's always been this like little critical voice in the back of my head but um, but also I don't know if that's totally I mean, true because but, you've worked with enough illustrators now to know that every illustrator brings their own little special style and twist. And it's yeah. funny to think of like, what if Ruth Chan had illustrated Snapsy? And what if Tim oh, Miller God. had illustrated The Great Indoors? Mm-hmm. And like to mix and match. I mean, you can do that right. with all sorts of things and just think, well, then it, it, it wouldn't be better or worse. It just would be different. Just right. like you can think about, well, what if, yeah. What if Pixar had made Shrek? Like it would have been a different movie, but it, it just would have been different because we all mm. like, you know, it's just different. Same with, right. same with when you're revising a novel and you think of all the different paths it could take. Um, wrong, right? Who cares? Just different. Yeah. So, I mean, the person yeah. who said it to me is an artist. And I think that the same way uh, that as writers, you get a lot of people who are aspiring writers come to you with their terrible ideas I think as an artist you probably get lots of people who are like oh I would paint if I had the time or whatever the version so she's probably very aware of a huge segment of aspiring artists who are terrible and I think that that's what she meant I mean Hmm. all of my illustrators have been incredible and I used to say I'm lucky and I am lucky I mean I love all my illustrators but also it's just that's because it's a professional yeah book. I mean because you're exactly. working with professionals right right I mean it's you yeah. know you could say to an illustrator if the words are terrible it's going to ruin the book or you're going to have to work extra hard to make the illustrations better and that's true too yep right I mean it's like let's yeah. all try to be professionals here and do professional work and this is a job and let's treat it as a job and not like some whimsical hobby pastime and then we'll make great books because that's our job I mean Haley you're right illustrators are artists and these picture books are works of art and I'm in total awe of them um yeah and of authors also and because yeah and also a publisher is not going to hire a bad illustrator to illustrate a picture book manuscript that they've like offered on it's just anyway yeah. that's obviously someone who doesn't really understand the business right. of making picture books and that's right. fine but yeah yeah well, there's a lot of people who don't understand it so that which is fine yeah. just True. learn about yeah. it <laughs> and they and they all eventually one by one kind of wash back into their own <laughs> circles of expertise I feel <laughs> like like they they either learn and become part of the industry or else they wander away and find something else to yeah have opinions about Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing as I've gotten better at this. And I think doing any job that is specific and takes some expertise and talent and professionalism and you build on it all yourself. I think that there's always people who think I can tweet, I can write an email, I can write a picture book and they just make that leap. And I mean, I get it. Sure. But like, it's, it's easy it's to look different. at an expert who's doing something seemingly effortlessly and thinking that it's effortless. Yeah, because yeah. they don't see the 85 drafts that you did, right? right? They don't see all the books that you threw away or right. 
Yeah. And that's the goal. The goal is to make it look effortless, yeah. but but we yes. know that there's quite a bit of effort behind that. With art being an artist in some way and creative work is that you can make something that is picture book shaped. You can make something that looks like a poem if you stand across the room. You can put paint on a canvas that you bought at the mall art store for five for five dollars. Um, and it looks you know, it's paint on a canvas. You can put words on a page. You can make something that is a book, but that doesn't make it art, I guess. I mean, it's very subjective, but I mean, what are you trying to do is yeah. what I would ask. Are you, are you trying to insult all the readers because you don't care? Are you just trying, I mean, to, I would to question- make money. Yeah, I would question whether if you can make a hundred thousand dollars with the self-published, right? I mean, sure, yeah. sounds fun, but like I just question it. You know, I yeah. just doesn't. Oh, that yeah. sounds like a big lie because yeah. it's, you know you can put all kinds of stuff in a pot and heat them up, but that doesn't make it delicious soup. Mm. Wow, how far can I take this metaphor? This is fun. I what else love it. I love all of the metaphors here. <laughs> Um, you know, and I just know it's going back to being proud of stuff. You know, I know that my role here is to take the weird, weird thoughts in my head and transfer them into other people's heads in the most delightful way possible. And the way that I do that is not by just throwing any word that comes into my mind and then making it rhyme and then hiring somebody for 50 bucks off of a website that I just learned about two minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So should we move on to our writing advice? Yes. Cause we've been portion. talking for a very long time. So sorry to take up all your time. <laughs> I could talk all day. I had so a feeling we, would, right, we would talk for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I wanted to ask you this. I don't know if this is actually writing advice, but I hear it said, so I'm just going to throw it at you. Um, and I guess I'm kind of saying this a bit selfishly because it's something that I'm kind of wrestling with. Um, but I guess it's the, I wanted to know what you thought of the idea of like never giving up. Like, because I do think it's a, we were talking before about like how um, the reason why we do this section of the podcast is to kind of interrogate a lot of the writing advice that comes from a very masculine very privileged perspective and yeah and I think that there is something like almost hyper masculine about the idea of never giving up on something um so yeah I wanted to know how you feel about that idea of never giving up on your writing or on a particular story I think those are two different things I think that never giving up well I think that when it comes down to it publishing is a difficult business and it requires resilience and the people who succeed are the people who keep writing and that is never giving up so you keep going you keep learning and working and getting better and you keep writing and making more books and you don't give up in that capacity um because if you stop writing because it's hard and because sometimes people are mean and say bad things about your books, um, mean things about your books. If you give up because of that, then you're not going to succeed. That's just math, I suppose. Um, but I certainly think that there's times to give up on a story. I mean, 
I do not think that you should keep writing every story. Um, and I, because some of them are just bad and why, why keep going? It's a waste of your time, but I think you can look at them. I was going to say, do a postmortem. Are we allowed to say postmortem after pandemic? If we're not allowed to say, right. Uh, but do postmortem and be like, what didn't work about this and why, and what can I learn from that? And I think, I think that the, the sort of patriarchal never give up thing that I would push against is the like Nike slogan aspect of it, of like gritting your teeth and sweating through it. Um, where I think that giving up, that sometimes you have to give up every day when something else comes along that actually requires your attention. I think about this a lot as a mom, as just a, you know somebody with a writing shed that needs sweeping now, but just that there's, you know, I have, if I'm gonna be a writer, be a mom, be a wife, have the house be like not a total disaster, make food for the family. If I'm going to exercise every day, which I also need to do for my mental health, like all of those things could conceivably be full-time endeavors. And I am not content just picking one of them and working on it full-time because I would really be giving up on a lot of my life. Um, but then that requires that every day I have to go deep on what each one of those things. And then at a certain point, I have to give up on it and go to the next thing. Um, and so never give up, but also give up all the time. As long as you come back to it, do small givings up all the time. Just don't do the big giving up on this thing that you feel like you were meant to do. Oh. That's beautiful. I love that. Wonderfully said. I love it. <laughs> that was Thank so you. perfect. It was. I'm, Haley, just, I'm soaking it in. Haley, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think about giving up? Yeah, so similar, I guess it's something that I'm thinking about now because, um, yeah, I've, I write a lot of novel like full novels that I revise two or three times sometimes I try to write them a bunch of different times and then I get to a point where I just think similar to what Julie said earlier like I just don't know how to write this yet I'm obviously maybe I don't have the skills yet maybe I don't have the life experience maybe I just I'm not connected to the story enough I don't know how to write it and so I have to put it aside um and I also so recently I was going through, I guess, I don't know why I was doing this. Was I torturing myself? I don't know. But I was going through all the things that I've set aside and I was just feeling really bad because I was thinking like, I just, I've given up on so many projects. Um, but I think it's that balance of, it's not that you give up just because it's a little bit hard um, because I mean, most of these things I, I wrote two, three, four, like full revised drafts of them. So it wasn't just that I was giving up just because it was getting a bit difficult. It was just, yeah, you get to a point where you have to know when to give up, I guess. So yeah, just like with everything, there's no, I just feel like there's no any kind of advice, writing advice, life advice, anything where you can just say, in every situation you do X. Like, no, in this situation, you have to figure out for yourself, is it the right time to give up? Maybe I'll give up for now or for a month and then I'll come back after a month. Or maybe I have to give up on it for a year or 10 years 
to grow as a writer so that I can come back to it and actually write it. Or maybe I'm giving up on it entirely and I'm never going to write it again because I'm just not interested. Like to me, the, the only reason I'll give up on something completely is just like, I'm bored. I'm bored of it. It doesn't interest me. It's not interesting to me. Um, I've lost the heart of it or I'm not connected to the heart of it. But any other kind of story where I think, well, I'm giving up. Yeah, I think I always kind of put like a like a footnote, like I'm giving up for now, like for three weeks or for a month or for a year or whatever it is. How about you, Lindsay? I'm just going to say the crucial thing is, though, it's not that you stop writing entirely if you give up on that story. You just stop writing that story and then you write something else. I think that those are yeah. very different things. I think don't give up on writing, but you can give up on that story for a little while. Even that I would say sometimes I have gone through stages when I've had a particularly difficult rejection or something has happened and I've just had a, a disappointment and I feel like giving up on writing. And even in that case, I will say to myself, okay, fine, you can give up for a week. Like you could not write for a week or a month or however long you need until you get to a point where you're like, I actually miss it now or okay, I, some, sometimes you need to kind of step away and fortify yourself so that you can come back and go, okay, I can try again now. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's never like giving up forever entirely. I think there's always an asterisk. Asterisk, is that the word? <laughs> asterisk, whatever. There's always a footnote saying like, okay, but I'm going to come back at this date. Yeah. yeah. That all sounds right. I think... <laughs> two things. First of all, I think that if we actually spoke to every writer currently writing, as well as peeked at like the papers of every dead writer who was great, we would find a lot of, uh, you know, what I quote unquote, abandoned projects, you know, things that mm. were started and not finished or things that they did finish and loved, but nobody else wanted it. And that was probably really painful to be like, what? This is so great. And everyone being like, this is so weird. No, we don't want this. I, I just yeah. feel like I can only think of one or two writers who sort of brag about having never trunked a novel. And I just think, well, whoop-de-doo for you. That's great. The rest of us have stacks and stacks of things that we haven't finished. And that's just part of being a writer, I think, is is never feeling completely finished. I think that's maybe like the uncomfortable part because there isn't, we would love to create a finish line. And that's what, um, that's what the term give up makes me think of as if it's one task and there's a, a start and a finish. And if you could just get to that finish line before giving up, um, then you will have passed that line and you won't ever give up because you did it and it just doesn't work like that it's it's there is no finish line you can make little finish lines as you go if you if you please um but sometimes that is really disheartening too because sometimes you can't even reach your own made-up finish lines and that feels <laughs> super terrible um yeah. but anytime that I have issues with finishing things or giving up or thinking about where my place in this fake race. Um, I just try really hard to zoom out and look at mm. timing from a much wider point of view. So instead of this year, zoom out and look at the last five years. Um, I hate it. I hate doing this. I hate the phrase, the big picture. 
um, because it always makes me feel like a bit of a failure to have to zoom out in order to find the successes. <laughs> um, but it, but it, when I zoom out, then I'm like, oh yeah, like my timeline is, it looks inconsistent up close, but all the way back, like, yeah, it's consistent. There's a timeline there. And I, you know, yeah, especially in publishing because you have no control over timing, really. Yes, it's the weirdest timing. And sometimes, yeah, it can just take years to get something off the ground. Yeah. You know? I'll tell you what I decided that I am going to give up this hmm. next year. Um, and I'm still like, this is like a new two-day-old insight that popped into my head that I'm like, oh, I solved it. I solved everything. But um, I am going to give up the giving my the authority of my writing to the publishing industry or to my idea of the publishing industry Mm. I that sounds so extreme it's not really I just was thinking about how much I let publishing this big whatever that means because it changes all the time this entity of publishing dictate my writing life my creative choices my daily practice, my priorities, what I'm working on, what I'm stopping working on. And I just like publishing doesn't make me the authority for them. So I I just feel like I would like to give that up for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll add to that. I would like to give up, um, I guess, handing over the power to publishing to tell me how worthy I am as a writer, like even just my self-worth, because that is something I've readily given up. Like you tell me how much I'm worth, you know? Yep. And I guess, yeah, the, the thing about being a creative person is you're the only person who could tell you that your work is important. When you're sitting down to write yet another terrible picture book draft, you're the only person who's like, no, this, there's something special in this. There's something worth doing in this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you come in that George Saunders book, he talks about figuring out what makes a story, a story that has like essential you-ness in it. And I think that that's what you're talking about, Lindsay, that you, I'm not looking at like what else is selling right now. And I'm going to write that. Do I think a publisher will like this? All I can do, my only job is to get these ideas out and make sure that they're that they're my ideas that only that I am telling in a way that only I can tell. And I hope that somebody likes them and I hope that they'll be good. Um, But, you know, I've certainly gotten rejections where it felt like this person didn't get what I was doing. And so I'm fine with this rejection because they wouldn't have been the right editor for this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And if if somebody doesn't like my book, it's just not the book for them. You know, there's other, there's, I'm talking about a reader now. There's so many books on the shelf, which is great because we're all pretty different and you can find a book that is a book for you that you do connect with whatever is happening in the author's brain. But it's too much for us to think that we are trying to please someone else. Um, You know, especially what we're saying after this time, we have to try to write a hundred terrible picture books to figure out what makes our writing ours. Yeah. Yeah. I I sort of feel bad for writers who may die with no trunked novels, just because I think I don't, I don't care that much about what happens to me and my legacy after I die. Like, that's not something I try to think about too often. Cause like, to me, like I'll be dead. I probably won't care. Um, but the idea of, I don't know, like sneaking into 
Sylvia Plath's papers and seeing what she worked on that didn't get published and that didn't get finished. Like that's not, maybe I'm romanticizing it, but like, I would like to be a writer who dies with a lot of stuff that I quote unquote gave up on that didn't get finished. Yeah. A lot of failures and a lot of rejections. That's the goal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to Story of the Book. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. Or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, stay safe and keep writing. Bye! Bye.